We've all seen the Instagram memes encouraging us to live our hashtag best life, but they rarely explain how. On this podcast, we'll talk about very practical ways to learn from challenging life experiences as a way to become a little more of our most phenomenal selves. We'll have connected community conversations about integrity, self-awareness, embracing discomfort, and offering compassion to ourselves and those around us. So come on in and together we'll find the way through. Each of these recent episodes has felt very special to me. But this one, honestly, it was so special that it actually caused me a little bit of stress. The conversation was so rich and so meaningful that I didn't dare try to edit it myself. It's twice as long as it's meant to be. And even when I gave an editor carte blanche to cut out whatever she wanted, it still rounds out at an hour and 35 minutes. The last 30 minutes may have been the best, or at least the most teary-eyed. I hope you'll listen not only to meet one of my dear friends, but to meet me through his eyes and to learn about mental health and the world of academia from my favorite scholar. Let's get into it. Hi, Eric. Hi, good morning. I haven't seen your face in In a long time. 10 years? No. (laughs) I don't know. Has it been that long? Have we seen each other since we both left Richmond? Uh, I feel like maybe one time. No, because you left and there was no, we, we've not been in the same geographic location for many moons, so. Yeah, so it's been a very long time. This is one of the like side effects of social media and the the cell phone age is that you feel like you've been in closer contact with someone than you've actually been. Yes. And now I'm sitting here like, wow, you're a grown up. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is very different than you at what, like 22? We'll say, we'll say 10 years ago, I was 22. Sure. <laughs> I was 18. 10 years ago, I was 18. <laughs> also, I made a promise to myself to actually not do math during this call. <laughs> That I made that promise to myself as an infant to not do math during this lifetime. And so far, I've done a really good job holding myself to it. So Good job. Well, welcome. Thank you. I don't know how this is going to go. <laughs> it's so far so good. No complaints. Eric, can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Eric Gerard. I am what they call a Hebrew Bible scholar. I'm between jobs, I guess, right now, I just finished my doctorate at Harvard University in Hebrew Bible, and I will be starting in the fall at Wellesley College right up the road. So teaching biblical studies to the masses. That's awesome. How did you end up being a Hebrew scholar? Oh, that is a long story. So I'll try to keep it concise. Um, As an undergraduate at Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, I grew up in Richmond and I majored in religious studies with concentrations, mostly in biblical studies. After I graduated, I thought I have a lot of student loan debt, I should try to get a real live job. And so I did, and that's actually how I met Raven. In my real live grown up job, I worked for Snag a Job for 
a couple of years and then I worked for an ad agency and I always had this sort of lingering thing in the back of my mind about whether I could make a career out of something I was passionate about or something I had a deep intellectual interest in, I should say, and passionate about. And so I applied to one master's program and I said, I'll apply to this program. And if I get in, I will go. And if I don't, I'm fine and I'm happy and I'm healthy and I'll stay sort of the, the ad agency technology career space. And then I got in. And so I thought, well, now I got to go. <laughs> so I moved to Atlanta and um, went to Emory University and did a master's in theological studies. And when that was coming to an end, it's a two-year program. And I thought, I'll apply to doctoral programs. And if I get in, I'll go. And if I don't, I'll go back to work um, <laughs> because I'm not independently wealthy. So, um, And so I applied to a few places and my advisor said, well, you should apply to Harvard. And I thought, yeah, you should apply to Harvard. But <laughs> she did apply to Harvard. She had gone to Harvard. Um, and so anyway... I applied and I, I didn't really think I'd get in and I got in. And so my wife and I packed up our things and moved to Boston or just outside of Boston. And that's where I've been for the last six years. Wow. Harvard. What's a thing that you've learned about academia that you think I would be interested to know? Um, I don't know that you'd be interested to know this. My sense is that you probably already know this and many of your listeners already know this, but there's this line, I think from an SNHU commercial for an online school where he says that talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And being at one of the most elite institutions in the world and in the history of the world, I have profound appreciation and respect for the amount of intelligence within the walls of Harvard. And this is not to diminish the, the gifts and the resources available to those students, but I have also come to know other students at other universities who have different paths for different reasons. And I have really come to appreciate that talent is evenly distributed in this world. And mm. And so I think the best case scenario and something that I talk to students entering the graduate programs at Harvard is that you now are in this very elite circle of privilege with mm -hmm. so many opportunities that will just be handed to you because you have this Harvard name attached to yours. And it is your job now to create opportunities for others. And I think the best case scenario are the students who come out of these elite institutions. And there are plenty of them out in the world who use that privilege to create opportunities for others. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Is that good? Does, it, does that check the box? It does check the box, but it also makes me feel like you're such an adult. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've had lots of years to consider the shortcomings of my youth, so. Wait, okay, so for context, for other people who will be like, what the fuck, like why is she <laughs> like, continuously giggling? Yeah. Let's talk about how we met. Yeah. So I just told you recently that the way that I introduce people <laughs> to the idea of you is that I tell them like, 
like however you come up I end up saying you know my friend that I've known a long time we work together now he's at Harvard and then I pull up a picture of you (laughs) (laughs) which is you inside of a four foot wide plush hamburger would that be an adequate yep that's the one how much do you appreciate that that's the picture that I remember of you? So here's the deal. I think that one of the other side effects of being at Harvard is people come to the table with this conception of who you are. And you, a lot of your time, or a lot of my time, I should say, has been both internalizing what that perception means to the outside world and protecting what I think of as my authentic or true sort of self. Um, and and so you internalize it without becoming it. You have a responsibility to the brand and image of Harvard, protecting that legacy and really honoring what it means to other people without letting it take over the things that are important to you. So, I mean, I think in some ways, like maybe the guy in a tweed jacket with an Oxford button down is sort of like representing what I'm performing Harvard in some ways but I don't think like you know we text all the time and you like I'm still very much the dude in the hamburger costume so (laughs) but I think like everybody is like everybody's performing their job in some way so you know when I when I'm facing the outside world when I'm not text messaging um this is this is work and I have a great deal of respect for your project and the things that you're working on and um, and I want to perform all the versions of myself. Yeah, that resonates with me too. Like, even as a self-employed person, for as much as I might say that, like, I am my boss, so I can do what I want because my boss allows it. Also, there is a certain responsibility to perform what people expect of a life coach or of someone who is a mental health advocate or a helping professional. And a part of me, like that's a a big part of what I am processing this year is as a black woman, how do I do that and also not abandon the other parts of me? Because that's something that we are encouraged to do just as we live and breathe and walk through the world. And so having to, to a degree, go back and find those pieces of myself and reintegrate them into this thing that I call being professional. And it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think finding ways to sort of incorporate the aspects of yourself that you really think of as character defining into what other people's expectations is always a challenge. I sort of see this in some ways in my research where I have this deep love for popular culture and I'm not willing to give up my Netflix binges. And I really do feel like this is something that keeps me stable is like, and grounded is understanding what the rest of the world is is thinking about and consuming because I like those things. and giving them up is not worth it to me and figuring out ways to integrate that into research expectations has been challenging. And I would also say it's been rewarding because a huge reason why I got this job at Wellesley is because 
they knew that I was passionate about it and they got it. And some places don't get it. You know, you want every job. You want to be successful and you want people to love what you love, but that's not always going to be the case. And I think the best fits, the best matches are when people are excited about the things you're excited about. Mm-hmm. So I know you just got this job and you haven't started yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah. And that there are a lot of details up in the air, but do you have thoughts or a plan, even just based on the teaching that you've done at Harvard around how you bring your full self into the classroom? So one of the reasons that I'm so excited about teaching in a liberal arts context is that there's a lot of freedom, intellectual freedom about what you get to teach. Um, and so there, I, there are obviously expectations, you know, I'm teaching an intro to Hebrew Bible in the fall. At some point, I'll probably teach an intro to the New Testament. And for those who sort of are not familiar with the terminology, Hebrew Bible is another word for Old Testament. So um, at some point, I'll have to teach the entire Bible, I guess is what I'm saying. But I also am probably going to teach in the spring Bible and pop culture course, which is sort of the intersection of, of my two favorite things to think about, or two of my favorite things to think about, I should say. So this is one of the ways that I get to sort of explore and try to pass on some of that excitement to students. The challenge, I think, is going to be that what is pop culture to me, what is pop culture to me, popular culture, is not pop to 18 year olds <laughs> right and so you never feel older than when you like as sort of an introduction in all of my classes when I'm getting to know my students I ask them to tell me their favorite movie and their favorite tv show just because I think you can learn a lot about people how they would answer that question um, and some of them are discovering friends for the first time and so like they're like like this is a a thing that they legitimately think they've discovered and I'm like oh oh no like they were not alive when these shows were airing it's sort of like when when we were little and happy days was on Nick at night and like oh my god and I was talking to Amber my wife the other day just about like how to bridge that gap in the classroom um, because you know, when I was a kid in the, you know, late 80s and early 90s watching Nickelodeon and Naked Night would come on and it would be shows that were in black and white and they just seemed so old and they were 20 years old. And now the shows that were 20, like 2000 was 20 years ago. Like my students were not alive in the year 2000. And those are the shows. I mean, I presume that Naked Night's still a thing. Like because I was thinking, oh, oh, full house, like that's what's you know, but like, or you know, when I was little, it would be like sister, sister, and things like that were the shows that I love to watch. But that's like thirty years old at this point. So, I mean, not thirty, like twenty-five. So even that's you know, it's depressing to think about. So yeah. But ten years ago, I was eighteen, so I'm hip, I'm cool. <laughs> that just blew my mind a little bit. Like that, that was the impetus behind my decision to not do math during this call (laughs) was, you know, I just had a birthday yesterday. I don't know how old I am. 25. I'm over it. 25. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) But like, like, I know that I know what you just said. Yeah. But it hasn't really like seeped into my soul. Yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. Um, so this is something I think you and I have been talking about, um, we both finished watching Better Things recently. 
And one of the things that really struck me about that is the ways in which the main character's daughters, who are mostly teenagers, treat her. And then they'll show how they sort of, in some ways, code switch and become a different person in the same scene to a different to a different person. You know, like that the way we modulate our personalities is something that starts very, very early. And one of the things that those kind of conversations, the one you were just describing with Mary, but this particular situation, seeing Amber, my wife, as sort of the work version of herself is very disorienting. And I can imagine people around the world right now are encountering their spouses and their children in different contexts. And it's challenging, I think. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like married to many people is just this full-fledged adult. And to you, she's always your baby sister, you know? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we are getting to see that in different ways. My older sister has a bit more of a house full at her place. And they're all getting to experience her Zoom calls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's pause that and come back. Like that sort of, like the work version is, it's it's interesting. Like it's still the person you love and they're, mm-hmm. it's just not the way that you're used to encountering them. So at the beginning of the shutdown, when classes moved online, I was teaching, um, a class for Leslie University, which is a small school also in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was teaching a world religions class. And I felt very strongly that I wanted to move the class asynchronous, which is to say not live sessions that they all had to log into. They were in different time zones. They had different responsibilities. But I did want to have one at the very beginning so I could explain the expectations and how the class was going to change. And one of the ways that in my professional life I experience this is that usually my students are right in front of me. They are fully present in the moment. And the way that I encounter them is in the classroom. You know, they're, they're wearing sort of their, their school attire. Sometimes that's just pajamas, but, uh, you know, they're undergraduates, they're 18. But, you know, like it's their classroom where they are a specific version of themselves. And so we log in to the Zoom session and in an instant, they became these like fully realized human beings to me. They had their like childhood rooms behind them and their mm. kitchens. And you can see immediately the income disparities between, um, in some ways, like this is, I don't, this is going to sound more naive than I mean it to be, but in some ways, like workplace buildings and, and in those, I include school, um, schools and institutes of higher education, they are in in some ways the great equalizer because everyone is encountered in the same way. That is not at all to say that everyone had the same path or that everyone's treated the same way, but that like you encounter that human being in that specific physical space in largely the same way. and then you bring all your terrible sort of preconceptions of what that physical being re- represents to you. But then to to remove that and to have everyone in their own context was just, it was very jarring and I think very important for me. Maybe other educators and other human beings sort of come to the table with that. But it was like, I think for the rest of my life, I'll remember. And I, hopefully I'll be able to take that back into the classroom when we're allowed to return, which is to say, I'm encountering them in a very specific way. That is not who they are. And that's who they are in that moment. But then they go back to those places and they become this other version of themselves. 
that was a very winding circuitous <laughs> route from better things but here we are <laughs> no i loved it and i i don't th think that any of that was naive at all i think that very many people that i'm talking to are having that same revelation from either side of it you know i'm i'm coaching some folks through a nonprofit program that i probably normally would have met them either in person or like at the organization that paired us but now i'm meeting them in their living room yeah and <laughs> you know i think about myself i love this wall that's behind me yeah and everyone is really impressed with it one time someone got on the phone and said um that I look like I am in paradise and I'm on some like oasis vacation. Yeah. The truth of the matter is it's just one wall and I've curated it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's not like what I'm looking at right now is not paradise. I'm looking at laundry and, <laughs> and an unmade bed and all of this is in one room. Like, and so, I think it's something that I regularly think about because I work from home and I end up interacting with a lot of people who work from home, but it's important for us to, even within this context, realize that there's still a larger picture of what people are experiencing. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, this is a different manifestation of the hamburger problem, right? Like that I'm sitting in front of you in a tweed blazer and a button down shirt, but I'm still the guy in the hamburger, you know, like that people will encounter me in very specific ways and it doesn't nullify every other aspect of my personality. Yeah. And to, and to offer that sort of generosity or wholeness to everyone you encounter is a constant struggle, but a necessity, I think. But do you do that? I, I I feel like that's a thing that that maybe we've even talked about before. Like, just in our daily experiences before this, as we encounter people in different situations or uh, conflict with people, I think one of the things that we share in common is this habit of considering the whole person. Yeah. And I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, I think, you know, for various reasons, I have had to sort of evaluate who I think I am, who I am to myself, who I am to other people. I mean, we've talked about this particularly recently and about different reasons that might be. But I think that I, from a very early age, I was put into, this is, more education, boring education background, but I started out in public school and um, what was happening was I was finishing my work very early in kindergarten and then I would go off and play. And instead of sort of about the, the teacher, it was public school. So like they had a lot of responsibilities. This isn't to say that they were in the wrong, but they assumed that I wasn't finishing my work and that I was just playing. And so they said I had ADD, which you know may actually be true. Um, <laughs> And they, they told my mom um, that I, I couldn't come back to school in the first grade, which doesn't sound legal to me unless she put me on Ritalin. And she said, well, I'm gonna take him to get tested. And she took me to a private school and they tested me and then offered me a scholarship. So I went for first through seventh grade. 
And in, in many ways, this school shaped my intellectual curiosity. It gave me um, a huge leg up that so many students don't get. But I was the only student on a scholarship. I was the only student from a single parent household. And so I became sort of a lightning rod for um, for underprivileged in that sort of institution that I I was singled out and I didn't fit in. Everybody else was rich and everybody else was, you know, and this is not like, oh, woe is me. But that is to say, like, I never as a kid from my peers felt like they understood me beyond sort of the presentation that they saw or that they knew. And having that experience, and I think most people experience that in some way and being able to process that for others' benefit, other people's benefit is a real challenge that I am always struggling with. But I never want anyone else to feel that way, right? Like that they, that they're being judged purely based on one thing that I know about them. And then, as I said, like there, there are constant moments from day to day um, where I realize that I am doing that, that, you know, my students are just the people sitting in the chairs and not these humans who are dealing with everything else in their lives and having to go back and having the humility to say, where am I failing at my sort of goal to, to make people feel like actual human beings? Yeah. Yeah. What I hear in that, and I'm realizing we have a similar story in that, like I was pushed into the, um, what do you call it? Like gifted, talented program in kindergarten, which meant that for at least some part of every week of my education for the first, you know, five years or so, I was pulled out of my natural environment yeah. and taking, taken somewhere else to be with the smart kids. And in that group of smart kids, I was the outsider. You know, I was the poor kid. I was, you know, the single parent home kid, all of those things. And even like because of how, how school districts are arranged, like some of that was just about what school I was coming from. You know, they knew very well, like, you know, each school had a, had a personality. Yeah, reputation. Yeah, yeah. And so it feels like there is a level of humility that comes out of growing through that type of adversity early in life and having that experience and not wanting other people to have that experience to the degree that you can control it. And so just giving people more of the benefit of the doubt. I think now I, I just really traffic in Boston is something that will will grind this into your soul is you can either assume everybody is out there to get you or that everybody's doing their best. And on a daily basis, I mean, now there's no traffic, which is sort of a, a wonderful side effect of this whole terrible situation we find ourselves in. Um, but Boston has some of the most horrendous traffic in the world. I mean, in the US at least, I don't know about the world and wants to do nothing about it, which is sort of infuriating. But, you know, when somebody cuts you off, you can either think like, oh, they, they want to cause me personal harm 
or you can think like they're doing their best, right? Like you don't know where they're going. They could be late to pick up their kid. They could, you know, daycares charge you an arm and a leg if you're five seconds late. And maybe that's the difference between them having dinner tonight and not having dinner tonight. Like giving yeah. people the benefit of the doubt is something that maybe comes with being denied the benefit of the doubt at some point in your life. Yeah, I've gotten to the point and probably um, the more I've gotten into the practice of yoga and meditation, which what comes with that is sort of the study of like, what is my mind? Yeah. And that the stories that we make up come from our mind. And so a practice that I've begun is, well, if I'm going to make up a story about what's happening, if I know that it's made up anyway, then why not make up a story that doesn't make me angry? (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I might as well spend this time making up a story that makes me feel better about that person. And and this is, of course, easier with people that we don't have to engage with. Right. It's easier with the person in traffic to tell myself like, oh, they must be they must have somewhere really important to be. And then I just like save my heart rate from rising over traffic, you know. And so trying to also apply that within personal relationships as well, like, because I can't ever truly know what's going on for another person, even sometimes when they tell me, because they're just all levels of of awareness and not awareness. And so like, okay, if I'm going to make up a story about this, then let me try to weave these pieces of the story together in a way that moves the relationship forward, that um, you know, resolves conflict that makes me feel like not necessarily good because that's a, that's a thing that I see. Like I see people striving to like be good or feel good. And that's not always great um, in terms of the outcome that it produces, but just like balanced, like, let me, let me create a story that makes me enter this situation with some balance and some humility and compassion. Yeah. And it, I, what I, one of the things that I love about that is that it's not just about making the other person look good. It's about like, what do you need to do for yourself to preserve your own well-being? <laughs> um, that it doesn't cost you as long, I guess I should say, as long as it doesn't cost you something um, or isn't at your own detriment, why not offer that sort of generosity towards your fellow human being? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work and I curse a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you were to ask Amber how good I am at this in the car, she would say not good at all. (laughs) There's lots of cursing. So one of the very small things I've tried to do is not use my horn unless I absolutely need to. This was very hard for me to adjust to when we first moved to Boston, because like in the South, you really don't use your horn. You don't have a lot of occasion to use it. But like as you go further and further north, you will encounter louder and louder horns. And so like, at first it made me very uncomfortable. And then I was on board. I was like, no, like if you have the wrong color car, you are getting a honk from me. And then I realized like, there are social rules about this, like the length of the honk, the frequency of the honk, like to it, it becomes its own language in some ways. And then I realized like, 
I don't need to do that. Like, unless, unless I am in danger, like imminent danger and need to like get someone's attention, I can just yell and get that frustration out of my car, which is why Amber would say I do very poorly at my driving generosity. But like, I don't need to pass that frustration on to another person and mess their day up. Yeah. Okay. So there are two things I want to say. So it, it reminds me of the concept of like popping a child on the hand. Like, you know, it's it's a thing you do to keep them from putting their fingers in a socket. Right. Not a thing you do out of anger. Right. And so if we can apply that same thing to how we relate to adult human beings, like like it shouldn't be a release of anger, but a way of stopping something bad from happening. Like, I think you're going to hit my car. And so I want to alert you. Yeah. So there's that. But then also I'm reminded of um, this thing that I heard yesterday from Lama Rod Owens, who has published or is publishing, I think it's like in pre-sale, this book called Love and Rage. Harvard grad. Harvard grad. (laughs) One of my (laughs) former students. Yeah. (laughs) Which again, blows my mind. (laughs) Um, I remember the day that like, because I had like seen him, I don't know, on Instagram or something. And then another woman that I know edited a group of essays that he was in. And I ended up reading his bio in that and saw that he was at Harvard and texted you. was like, do you know this person? "Ah." I was like, yeah, he's in one of my classes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which, which, was big because the way that I see him isn't as this like celebrity or whatever like it isn't the way that I would see someone like Sharon Salzberg who's this like big you know popular Buddhist teacher who's online everywhere I just see him as like a guy (laughs) who's studying these things and he's also a Buddhist teacher. And I just really dig the way that he approaches the things that I'm interested in. And so having that experience of like picturing him in your class was like a kind of an equalizer and maybe even an equalizer for how I then see people like Sharon Salzberg, who he's constantly on stage with. It's sort of like when people say celebrities are always smaller in person. It's not like I don't know that you ever envision, like maybe that physical space they take up is sort of equivalent to the mental space they take up in your mind. But like what you see is an actual human instead of a demigod. Although I will say I've met Morris Chestnut in person and he was actually smaller. (laughs) Physically smaller. (laughs) And that was shocking. (laughs) Anyway, so, so, so yeah. So Lamarad Owens, I adore his approach to just spirituality as a Black person. And he's written this book on love and rage. So the thing that he said yesterday is that one of the ways that he's able to regulate his anger and his rage is by controlled release of those things in places where he feels safe. Um, And so what he said is he lets it out by being petty yeah but by being petty with his friends and again that's another like equalizer like here's a human being (laughs) 
who does the same, like has probably the same conversations that I have with you. Yeah. And that like, and is comforted in the fact that he can speak to whoever his like inner circle is in a certain way and just trust that they get that that's different from the version of him that leads silent retreat right and that they're able to kind of respect and hold that so that felt big to me especially as i'm um what do i want to call this like just really thinking about what it means to show up as a public figure yeah and like really considering what those two with those more than two sides of me I think like one of the things that that really relies on is a group of people with whom you have the trust and the comfort to be that very authentic or very raw, at least version of yourself that like you trust those people enough to sort of let go of the half-baked thoughts that you and they're, they're sort of concentric circles, I would imagine. I mean, Amber gets the rawest, most unfiltered version. And I'm like, is this crazy? And she's like, no, that's way beyond crazy. Like, that's not crazy. That's like, um, you maybe should be locked up for saying that out loud. And then, you know, like people like you or like our mutual friend, Stephanie, like you get the sort of like, I've been thinking about this. Is this like, is this worth thinking about? Or, you know, like where you, you kind of like, that's sort of like the most intimate kind of circles. And I find that one of the things that I feel like the internet or at least social media has done is made everyone think that every thought in their head is worth expressing to everyone. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, where are your friends? Like, where are the people? And maybe that's, maybe that's a generational thing that like, we grew up with like a, a very small hand full of people who you would just like spend hours on the phone with like we need those hours on the phone friends before you like tweet it out to the universe you know yeah yeah and I don't get the sense that that millennials do that yeah um I do know that they do that in relationship (laughs) because I've unfortunately had to witness the overnight (laughs) FaceTime phone call that lasts for 12 hours Um, where they just like watch each other breathe. Um, so definitely that, but even that like, isn't conversation. Yeah. Like we were on the phone with people having conversation for hours and hours. So have you heard of the concept of the shitty first draft? Um, yeah, well, I rarely make it out of that draft. (laughs) It's called a dissertation. (laughs) This is a a shitty first draft of my book. Oh, no, not at all. Couldn't possibly believe that. So the shitty first draft, I want to say it was written about by Anne Lamott, but she was also maybe quoting someone else who used it differently. But Brene Brown talks about it in um, a relational way. So like as a writer, the best way to start is to just write and to not have any expectations from it, but to just get it out. And then you're very careful about who you then show that draft to. Um, And so as a human in relationship, it also is helpful to just express yourself, to just say the things that you're not sure like what they mean or if they make sense, but then also understanding that 
exactly what you said, like you have to figure out who it is that gets to hear that first draft and that understands that that's exactly what it is. And so then doesn't hold you accountable for the things that are said in that first draft. Yeah. So there's someone um, who I neglected to mention in my like most intimate circle, which is my therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I like, because I am so self-critical, I sometimes wonder like, what does she really think of me? But that like, that is the space where I, I'm a talker, like I have to talk things out. And so um, that is the space on a regular basis where I'm not really workshopping ideas, but like workshopping my feelings. Like you say something out loud and then I'm like, do I really think that? Like, am I that terrible? Um, Or, and then like, even from session to session, I'll go back and be like, I said some things that like, I'm not sure I actually think those, you know, like I just had to, that those, that was the shitty first draft of my feelings. Mm-hmm. And I've had some time to sort of like evaluate that that may just be a small component of a larger picture of what I feel. And she's like, no, that's the point of therapy. Like, yeah, you did it right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've had two therapists at Harvard. One of the best and um, sort of most privileged aspects of being at Harvard is the the fantastic insurance, health insurance, that I've had some of the best medical care and mental care since I've been here that have really gotten me through this process. So the two things that I tell incoming graduate students are this thing about paying your privilege forward, and the other is find a therapist because it's a bumpy ride and you need someone to to ride along with you. And so they, my two therapists that I've had um, and my primary care physician, I thanked in the acknowledgments of my dissertation, which is like, it seemed like the bare minimum that I could do. As my advisor says, like, it's the least I could do. If I could do less, I would have. But they were like profoundly touched by this because, you know, maybe people don't appreciate the sacrifice that they make, but I could not have done this without therapy. So here we are. (laughs) In this next segment, we focus in on. In this next segment, we focus in on mental health, talking about the self-imposed pressure of doing what you love, how therapy helps, and how self-awareness is a building block to asking very clearly for what you need. Okay, in the last <laughs> 10 minutes of this conversation, <laughs> uh, let's talk about men. Part one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, of course, I feel like we have been, but more specifically, can you share just a little bit, even if it's specific to your experience in these last few years at Harvard, why has mental health become a priority to you? Um, because it had to. It's such a stressful process. So I am always reminding myself that such a small percentage of the global population gets to do something they love for five minutes. And here I am being, I've had the opportunity to do this now for eight years, not including my undergraduate experience. I mean, I'm 12, so, you know, 
at least a third of my life, really, I've been able to do something that I love. Um, and that is something that I'm profoundly grateful for. And it also comes with a huge amount of self-imposed pressure, which is to say, if you have the opportunity to do what you love, you better get it right. And I think about all the people who have made and continue to make sacrifices so that I can do this, you know, from my mom and the sacrifices she made to give me the best education that she could to my patient and amazing wife who uprooted her life so that she could work here so that I could do what I love and she works a job she's very good at. Um, but that, you know, she works that job because it's here so that I can do this. And, you know, her family doesn't get to see her because she's in Boston supporting me and my friends who have devoted so much time encouraging me and visiting me and like, all, you know, all these people do this because they love me and they want to support me. Um, but that puts, a, I put a lot of pressure on myself to sort of deliver on that and figuring out a way to have realistic expectations and to make that pressure productive instead of deconstructive was something that I needed therapy for. Um, and so figuring out a way to deal with all those feelings and, and make sure that I could continue to deliver productivity through that stress. Um, but then also having this fantastic source of external accountability. Uh, when part of the process of getting a doctorate is sitting for comprehensive exams, um, which is something you do usually in your third or fourth year, where you take these long tests um, and show that you know some things about what you're doing. Um, and you study for years to take these. Um, and then you sit down for a few hours and show that you know some things and that process was extremely stressful and the thing about anxiety which i learned from a different therapist while i was in atlanta was that anxiety when you harness it can make you very productive and there are certain behaviors that you might um, use to or you might develop to enhance that productivity for me it's about scheduling and lists and those kind of things but if you let your anxiety go unchecked you sort of reach this peak and then fall off the edge, which is I. there have been points where I've been unable to produce anything because my anxiety is just sort of running amok. And having that external source of accountability to say, here are the goals that I set for myself on a weekly or a bi-weekly basis, and having someone to just start the session with, this is what you said you wanted to do, how did you do with those things? And so I knew in some days, it was just like the night before I went to therapy, I'm like just, feverishly trying to make my way through this checklist but like that's what it took to motivate me to get those things done and to show up to another human being who there were there are no conditions to therapy right like it's not but it's not like your spouse or your friends who will love you no matter what whose love and affection for you is unconditional and not tied to your professional life it was also not like my advisor or for many of your listeners, I think like your boss or like your client who has very specific conditions for their relationship with you, that your paycheck or your success is entirely keyed to meeting benchmarks. And this was somewhere in between whose I didn't have, I didn't need their approval, 
our relationship wasn't contingent on me meeting goals but they were going to hold me accountable right like that the, they would at least say you said you wanted to do this where are you with that and so it would motivate me to have that personal accountability and on the other side of that i learned this very important life skill which is having patience with myself when i didn't meet my unrealistically ambitious goals and i uh, one of the things i think that comes with people who pursue their passion i would say is whether that's in education or whatever is that you have these huge goals for yourself and then what happens when you don't meet that goal um and saying like oh it's okay like you have you can stretch the timeline out you can um modulate how realistic it was that you were going to be the most famous person in the world overnight and then sort of chunk that up into into attainable things and realizing that like those people that love me unconditionally love me unconditionally whether i hit those goals or not you know and having that sort of emotional safety net what therapy has allowed me to do is to appreciate and to really evaluate the value evaluate the value of um what that safety net means in my life yeah so how do you access that safety net like in the moments where you truly need it how do you articulate to those people what you need well the the honest answer is that i usually don't when like in that moment when you need it you're too like you're too stressed and like you you probably i would think that most people let it get too far and so like it's it it's having the self awareness to know i guess when you need it and then probably 5 hours earlier to reach out for that um and so what it often looks like is i let it get too far and then i'm like okay now we need to have a conversation but i think as i've gotten older i have realized that no one will ever give you what you need unless you ask for it. So people are often I find that many of my peers will come to me and say like, "Oh, how do you have such a good relationship with this professor?" And what I say to them is is that professor has never given me less than what I've asked for and has also never given me more than what I've asked for. You know, like that they have always delivered on exactly the requests that I have put in front of them. but they've only done that because i knew what i needed and so like a lot of that is just knowing what you need to be successful and then expressing that in very specific words and literally the worst thing that can happen is someone says no i can't give that to you and then you're like okay well then i have to go get it from someone else or i have to make get that from myself or you know like whatever and then you're no worse you're really no worse off than where you were to begin with but just like being incredibly explicit i mean it's sort of like In academia you develop syllabi that set very ex- specific expectations for your students about like this is what it takes to succeed in this class. It's like an emotional syllabus for the people in your life, you know, like this is what I need to succeed. It, it's almost like a reverse syllabus, I guess. Like if your students and I I even have one of these sort of like surveys at the end of my syllabi that it basically solicit those kind of answers from students to say like what do you have going on in your life what do you need from me to be successful in this course do you have accommodation needs those kind of things and so it's like taking that syllabus and putting it out into the world into my social circles and saying like hey i need you right now i need to have a conversation yeah yeah and it sounds like a part of it is beforehand 
like having built up those relationships and having maybe even had previous versions of that conversation where you've discussed what your needs are yeah. and being able to kind of call back to that in the times where you need it because that is the hardest time to articulate it yeah and i do agree that most people wait until past that time <laughs> it's also just like self-awareness you know like as an adult you have to start with knowing who you are and the things you need to be successful and the habits that have made you successful in the past so like think of your most successful project the thing you're most proud of and then think about the behaviors that you cultivated to make that that project successful and then replicating that going forward so one of those is therapy um, others are sort of scheduling and very specific targeted deadlines and oftentimes my success looks like thinking about the the big goal at the end and then backing off that and figuring out like what's the timeline that i have to make that happen and then that, that kind of thing yeah do you find that when, when you think of this emotional syllabus that you mentioned this request that you make for other people, but also this very specific style of request. Do you find that there's benefit for you in just crafting that request? Yeah. I mean, at least working through it in my brain, you know, like taking the time. And oftentimes, as I've said, like I process by speaking. So sometimes it's speaking that intention out loud to another human being before I run that draft by the person um, who needs to receive it. Mm -hmm. Or just like cycling through what that stress is, you know, like to someone I trust before you, you take it to a, to a wider concentric circle, you know, like the next step out. But sure, and, and I think one of the sort of like the bigger takeaway for me is that there is no wasted experience, right? Like there were times at the beginning of my education where I thought I wasted so much time working for, this is funny, I didn't plant this, but like, <laughs> I wasted so much time. Well, I just showed Raven a, a jump drive that I have. It's a snackinggoodjob.com on it. Um, that I wasted so much time working jobs. Like that, that sort of skill set is not valued I, I had told myself that it wouldn't be valued. And it turns out like all the behaviors that make me successful as an academic are things that I learned in the private sector, right? Like setting goals and marketing and, um, you know, web design, like the things that make me stand out are those unique experiences that I accumulated over time. Or sometimes it's very small as like having a jump drive from my previous employer that I am still using, you know, all these years <laughs> later. So that they're in the same way that like processing something out loud or even to yourself is not wasted effort because you can use it or at least that experience. There have been very few experiences in my life that don't yield some profit at a later point. Okay. I know we're already an hour in, but here's where things get deep. You'll learn how Eric played a huge role in my first business, how witnessing my experience as a Black woman in the workplace informed how he now shows up for other women of color. And hear us talk about what really is a good person and why it's better 
to be better. At the tail end, we uncover the secret to being friends with me and how Eric thinks I've changed over the years. Yeah, I've often thought about what I gained from that experience at Snag a Job. Me. And that it, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. You know, like knowing you and still being in friendship with you makes it very easy to see that as an experience that wasn't wasted. But for a long time, it made it easy to just focus on that and to not look at what I learned while I was there. First of all, the reason that I was able to start my business was probably in large part being in that internet startup atmosphere. You know, we know many people who have left there and started their own businesses. And I think that, you know, some of that came from the way that we were allowed to work there. And also the things that I learned about marketing and specifically online marketing were the reason that I was able to start my business online and have sort of an accelerated level of success in the beginning. Not super accelerated because I'm still not rich, but, (laughs) you know, compared to someone who's entering life coaching and doesn't know where to get leads from and doesn't know what leads are or what a funnel is, that kind of thing. So definitely the more uh, traditional marketing elements of what I still use today, I got from there. And there's a lot, there's a lot that we, like that environment for what it was, um, (laughs) there was, for me at least, uh, lots of trash (laughs) in that experience. And probably more as I look back on it, there were things that I didn't know about myself specifically things that I didn't know about being a black woman in a professional workplace that I know now. And so I kind of look back on those experiences differently and understand that, Oh, that was actually like, I was in the midst of a very typical process. Um, But anyway, so there's a, there's a lot that I look back on that, that I gained from that experience even in the midst of it being trash for me. Yeah. And I think it's also like when I, when I say that there, that I don't have any waste, I don't think of experiences being wasted. Sometimes it's just the foil, the value of what I don't want having that self-knowledge, you know, it's very easy for me to reflect on my time at Snaggy Job because as you said, like I can look at my, my friendship with you and I can look at my friendship with Stephanie, one of our friends and say, well, that was worth it. Like whatever that trash was, yeah. I got two lifelong friends out of it. And I can sort of, not to romanticize our time there, but like I have the ability to say, um, fine, whatever. Like that was the cost and I got something good out of it. But I also like, I learned that I can be good at anything, not anything, <laughs> definitely not anything, but I can be good at things when I, when I want to be good at them, even if I don't love it, right? Like you can you can find ways to excel in environments that may not be the end of the road for you, but you can get something valuable out of it. And it was part of the journey that got me to what I do love. Like it made me realize like, I don't want that. I could do it for the rest of my life, 
but I really want to try to do this other thing, you know? And, mm-hmm. and that's ultimately part of the journey that I was on and that I still am on. But like, you know, when I was interviewing for jobs and I put together sort of portfolios that had a very strong design aesthetic to it, like that was, that is not something that my peers really do because they don't have that experience. And for me coming from like our marketing background, I can't imagine not doing that thing. And to be honest with you, like it's not, it wasn't a hundred percent successful. Like it looks in some situations, like this dude is doing the most, right? Like when everybody else is doing nothing, like having such a strong, a strongly developed portfolio can be too much. But like, that is going to be me in that atmosphere. And like, that's a really good way for them to be like, we don't want this dude because he does too much. And for me to know, like, I can't work here because I'm, I'm going to continue to do that. Right. Like right, they're going right. to be. And, and then when you go to the, to the employer and Wellesley for me was this place where like, they were like, holy cow, like, this is what we need. Someone who sort of really understands and can market, um, the value of a religious studies degree to students or just religious studies classes to students and to the administration. And like, like they got it. And like, yeah. And and that sort of, that's something that I would have never been able to do had it not been, or, you know, like I wouldn't have thought to do, I would say, had it not been for my experience yeah. in those jobs. I'm laughing because people always kind of pat me on the back for my graphic design skills. Yeah. And as you say that, I'm like, oh, well, I had to learn to be a graphic designer because I was working with a graphic designer who fucking hated yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> Anything I asked. Yeah. Yep. Oh, so, great experience. And But actually, I realized that I got way off track when I was talking about the job. I think I like fell into a, <laughs> I had like a PTSD <laughs> moment. But what I meant to say was that that job was incredibly fun we got a chance to be super creative and do things like the hamburger suit. And just like we had a a little bit of a playground there in our marketing role. I guess what I want to share is one of my favorite things about having worked with you and specifically when we were able to sit near each other was the creativity and sharing of ideas that happened in our little pod. Because, you know, we were all assigned to different teams and different projects. But if I were working on a creative idea, I could say it out loud and you would be there to make it better. Like to just like sprinkle a little of your sauce on it. And that was a a way that we collaborated that I still think about to this day when I'm working on something creative. I'm like, like, oh my God, you named my first business. I may have done that. I don't <laughs> You I just remembered that. <laughs> so this is one of the ways that we've collaborated since then is that when I was starting my business, I remember I had that thought of like Eric's the person who like helps me like make my ideas pop. And so I called you and I said that I didn't want my business to just be my name. I also didn't want to use my last name. And so we took the letters in my first and middle name, which is Raven Delena. Yeah. And we came up with Veranda Lane. Thank you. 
<laughs> I, um, one of the things I think that I learned there and that I continue to take with me is that if you have an idea that you think is good, run with it, like give yourself the space and the flexibility to do that. And then if it doesn't work out, cut ties and go a different way. Yeah. Fail fast. We, we were taught that. Here. Yeah. I think speaking specifically of our relationship, one of the things certainly that your listeners don't know is about the intricacies of our relationship, which is um, when Raven and I first met, we were both in different positions. We were not in marketing and we did not hit it off. She, I was like a young, like, I guess I was probably 22 or 23 when I started there and I was young and I was white and privileged. I mean, I'm still, I'm not young anymore, but I'm still white and privileged. And I was like overly aggressive, like too playful and just too much. Like, and I think Raven was one of the only people who was willing to like, let me fail and really be clear that it was it was a failure right like that that my shortcomings were not going to be tolerated by her and that i needed to recalibrate my behavior in order to meet sort of her minimum expectations of what a relationship could be and that was like a journey right like that probably took 18 months to two years before i could like correct um, and really like figure out what it meant to be in a professional relationship with this human being. Whereas like lots of other people there were just like willing to just either one, cut you off completely or two, just let you be a fool um, because that was like your authentic self. And Raven had like very specific expectations, which is something that I've really come to appreciate and that I've tried to internalize about like, what are the minimum standards for a professional relationship? And then allowing someone to change over time, right? So like if Raven had said, like had just written me off, which she probably should have as this like punk kid who like was just an obnoxious waste of time, we wouldn't be here right now. Like you and I literally would not be in this specific place right now. Yeah. Um, and we have a great friendship now because Raven was willing to allow me to like mature as a human being and realizing that your first impression of someone is not who they will always be. That does it like if I think like she could have put to, there could have been a situation where I didn't change and I just continued to be that jerk and Raven would be like, oh no, my first impression was right. I'm a great judge of character and this person is trash. But like having the willingness to like let someone mature and be a different person over time. And maybe like that was sort of your initial response when we got on this call was like he's like a different human being than who I met you know all those years ago yeah I'm trying really hard not to cry <laughs> why are you gonna cry because <laughs> you're like oh no I actually just wasted 10 years he's still that trash <laughs> human being no because I forgot about that like my memory of our friendship picks up you blocked it out at like the end. <laughs> I, I mean, it picks up at the good part. Yeah, you know, it picks up at. I shouldn't say the good part. It picks up at the deepest part of our friendship there. Um, and so now I, I do remember that, and I also remember 
Like, I think that that's a thing that I do with everyone. And you just rose to the occasion. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that I, that I had any expectation that you would change or be something different in order to be in friendship with me. You just did. And then when it, you showed up that way, I was like, oh, okay, well, now this is like this I can do. Um, but I, I do think that because what I, what I can remember about that is exactly what you said, that there were people who were willing to just laugh. And I did recognize that that wasn't okay. And I remember specifically in that environment, even though now that I think about it, like I was young, (laughs) but I felt like the elder in that environment because especially at that time they had just started to hire people fresh out of college. And so I've always been a little bit further along in my career than people my age. And I was looking around at people who weren't being given opportunities because they had only ever worked at this place and they weren't being adequately trained beyond their role, but developed as professionals. And I, I took that on as a responsibility, at least with the people that I interacted with on a regular basis, that like, I just wasn't going to allow those people to be in this fun place and like drink the beer and play the ping pong table and let the first few years of their career pass them by and then expect to be promoted. Yeah. I also, I think that one of the things, so you said that there were people who are willing to just like laugh. What that says to me is that there are always people who are willing to one, let you be complacent, but two, I mean, for their own benefit in some ways, but to let you be the worst version of yourself. Yeah. Right. Like I was basically for, a lot of my time there, I think I just sort of ran around being some version of the show Jackass, right? Like that, like that show is built on allowing people to be sort of like the worst version of themselves for the amusement of other people, like to be the court jester or something like that. And I think that in some ways characterizes a lot of my time there was like playing everything up for laughs in very problematic ways. Like there was no one there to like, to check me and say like, no, maybe the white kid at a suburban technology company doesn't do a take on Bone Thugs and Harmony. I mean, we're in a different, in some ways we're in a different time now, like that maybe that wouldn't fly, but like there will always be people there in your life if you let it happen or lack the self-awareness to let you be the worst version of yourself, particularly if it benefits them. Or entertains them. Yes. Or entertains them. Um, And then to really like what struck me about Raven was that she wasn't going to let me be the worst version of myself. One, because it wasn't amusing to her, <laughs> but like that there, like that I could be funny without humiliating myself. <laughs> I, I actually can't be funny without humiliating myself, but she held that possibility out there. <laughs> no, like you, you certainly can. And that, that your humor, your sense of humor and your willingness to like make fun of yourself became useful in the role. because. 
eventually, once we both landed on the marketing team, you began to use those ideas or that energy to come up with great marketing ideas. Yeah. What I'm curious about, because we've talked about my short memory, (laughs) (laughs) particularly when it pertains myself. (laughs) So I'm I'm sitting here in, in front of the at least the third version of you that I've met. <laughs> um, and I do see from the beginning of this call how different that person is even from the person I knew. Like I want to, whatever was our midpoint, like I keep remembering them as your Atlanta years. Yeah. You know, so like post Naga job, but before Harvard. And you continue to grow and become this amazing person. And so I first just want to say that. Thank you. Like, in whatever way it's appropriate for one adult to say to another that I am proud (laughs) of you. (laughs) I am that. How do you think I've changed? (laughs) If at all. I feel like I have seen you become more comfortable with yourself and like with your strengths and all of the sort of characteristics that I just mentioned about you having very specific standards. I've seen you create a space and a career for yourself that allows you to be more resolute in that conviction, um, which is something that I really admire because what I now looking back, of course, you know, like 10 years ago, I don't, I didn't notice or see any of those things, but I can, readily think about this is going to sound specific to our experience with that employer and I don't mean it to but the kind of behavior that takes place in all white or mostly white corporate environments towards women towards people of color and particularly towards women of color I can look back at our experience and think this was not okay And you knew that. Like, I can look at our experience there and I can, like, vividly see your face in my mind when those sort of things were happening and that you just swallowed it because it was a paycheck, right? Like, that you needed that job to live. Mm -hmm. And it was a big paycheck. Yeah, a big paycheck. Um, And you had no support of people around you saying or recognizing that those things were wrong and problematic. And what I see in you now is a person who values her mental health and her well-being and her passion above making white people happy, right? Like that, like that um, making white people comfortable in their own skin is not important. And also that like a big paycheck isn't the the most valuable thing, right? Like being happy and content and driven and passionate is sort of like the priority I see in your life and creating spaces for other people to feel that way about their own pursuits. I feel like it inspires me and to think about also like really challenges me to think about when I see those types of environments now, what can I do to make other people not feel that way, right? So when there are people like Raven in my life now, I see that same face 
that like deep breath she needed to take in those moments. Like I can see her chest rising and falling and like the stress weighing down on your shoulders and thinking of those moments and watching other people do that. Like that moment of quiet and silence a, a woman of color takes when she is put in the position where the people around are offering her no support and and that she knows like it like to me and i i may be reading this wrong but like it was that moment when you realized this was a battle you were not going to win and that there was no one there to fight it with you right like that 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 you just were there and and unseen and like i can recognize that moment now because of raven like not in you i think but also in other people where like i can watch that breath in that second and i know like when that intake of breath is happening is when i need to be exhaling the words of defense right yeah and that 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 is something that i learned from you or like the the recognition of that moment in other people this is a time we're talking about my time at snag a job is relevant and i haven't really created this space before so first of all yeah those moments so those moments that you were talking about for people who don't know like weren't in moments of like people calling me the n-word never that obvious <laughs> yeah it was never that obvious we're talking about weekly team meetings we're talking about happy hours and outings, you know, the, the times where everyone else was having the time of their life because they work at this cool company and there was all of this freedom to do and be and say whatever you want. And their freedom, what that meant for me was that I, I didn't have mine, that I had to take those deep breaths through whatever I was um, approached with. Uh, so yeah, that was heavy. And I want to talk first about the amount of money I was making. Because, <laughs> because it's relevant though. Like, so I was in a role where I didn't have a degree and I was leading a team of people who did before my marketing role. And, and even within the marketing role, a part of that was, was also some like team leadership and, and creating, like collaborating across teams and leading projects with people who assumed that they were smarter than me because they had degrees and I didn't. And there was a point, I remember the point where people found out that I didn't have a degree and how behavior changed. And I, I, feel strongly that that was the beginning of the end for me, that, that people had been searching for, like, why does this person feel so confident? Why, why is this person, um, like, in, a, in an environment where it was okay to, to come up with um, great ideas, why did I feel confident doing so? And so I had done that for, let's say, two and a half years, and there were people who hated it uh, because my approach was that, like my ideas were just as important as anyone else's. And because of the, the workplaces that I've been in before, I hadn't yet been taught to not speak up. And so, so there was that. So there was that huge shift once people found out that I didn't have a degree. 
this was probably the most professional job that I have worked at. Um, and the highest salary I ever made to the point where I remember I had direct deposit. <laughs> and so like in whatever setup process, I had just said like, you know, send this percentage to my checking and this percentage to my savings. And then I went to move into a new apartment and I was like, oh, I really want um, new furniture. Like, this is a big deal for me. I was like maybe 25, somewhere between 25 and 27. And I was like, I want new, like, I want to walk into a furniture store and buy a new couch and had this feeling of like, how am I going to save up to buy this new furniture? And someone was like, well, like, don't you have a savings account? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. And I looked at my savings account and I had (laughs) $10,000 and it never occurred to me that I had that. And that that's like that whole, like that just huge shift and like, oh, I'm now able to afford the things that I need and a bunch of extra stuff. Um, And so, and there was even a point like somewhere in there where I got like a $19,000 raise. Like I, it was, yeah, just like, and so that's where I was financially. But you got to see the moments where like that deep breath is like my soul seeping out of my body. Yeah. And by the end, I was describing like, you know, I was at the point where I was doing the whole like show up at work, sit in the parking lot for 30 minutes, don't want to go in. I was listening to Lauren Hill's I Get Out on repeat on the way to work like screaming it out loud as, you know, just like had to do everything I could to just walk in the door. Um, and so leaving that was a big decision, but also it was a really small decision. <laughs> like it was a really, um, uh, when I finally did, um, it was a very easy decision that I really made on the spot and it, you know, it unfolded in the way that it did which ended up being beneficial to me. Um, But I would say that that whole experience is a thing that I'm probably still recovering from. I appreciate you even like just giving space to, to talk about that experience and the trauma that it was in addition to the growth um, and the experience and all of the, the wonderful things that came out of it. And like, I also just want to say like, we were damn good at our jobs. <laughs> like we were really good. Yeah. And so that's a thing. That's a thing that I very often remember. That was an environment where I first realized that I could be great yeah. at things. I think in some ways it, it also suggests the ways in which the various facets of success can cloud our judgment and ha- allow us to compromise our disposition, the, the decisions we would normally make under, without those conditions yeah, can sometimes change, sometimes for nece- necessary reasons. Yeah. I, mean, I remember saying, like... As I was, you know, dealing with conflict in all the different ways that it showed up, I remember saying to my boss, like, 
do you get that if it weren't for this place and this building, I would never encounter that person? Right. So that's the problem that we're having here. It's not about miscommunication. It's not about whether I email versus say something in person. Like it's, it's not those things. It's the fact that we are so different yeah. that they would never even have made it into my orbit. And that's the place from which we need to resolve this conflict. Yeah. And that just wasn't, um, they weren't able to access that. And I remember saying that about, about several different people because that, that was the reality. And they probably still haven't ever since then encountered a person like me um, or had to, had to really take seriously a person like me in their professional world. And how nice that must be. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> one of the things I remember, and I won't say who said it, <laughs> but it's, it's one of those like small things that sticks with me. Uh, there was a senior level sales manager who was responsible for the person that I probably gave the hardest time because we were like in my first role, like as a um, account manager, we were partnered with sales folks. And so I gave one of my sales folks a really hard time necessarily so and so his boss because of that once said to me um the man you marry is gonna have to be amazing to deal with all of this mm-hmm. like and when he said it, like, of clearly I've remembered it many, many years later. So it hit me in a certain way, but it's only more recently that I've unpacked all of the layers in that comment of like, first of all, you think that the way that I interact with this person is the way that I show up to romantic relationships. Right. Like, that's just one level of the absurdity. Well, I don't think he's wrong. I know I, (laughs) I in my head, in my head, I know who you're talking about. I know the two people you're talking about. So Mm -hmm. he's not wrong. The person you marry will need to be amazing. I will make sure, like, (laughs) my role as your friend, you will not, if you decide to marry someone, that person will be amazing. So he was not wrong. But he meant it as an insult. Yes. In terms of the stories that we can create for people, because we'll just say he was right. And (laughs) it was a compliment. Like he recognized how great you are and how amazing you are. And he knew that someone would need to match that amazingness. No, I mean, like, I think one of the things that's changed, I mean, you you commented on sort of like I'm in version 3.0 or 3.2 or something like that right now. Um, one of the things that I have I've been hyper aware of is sort of my definition of what a good person is, has changed dramatically over my lifetime. And in light of many of the social changes in this country or you know, the attempts at, so I don't know that things have actually changed, but the, I'll say the awareness around certain issues in this country around um, 
race and gender and sexuality and inclusivity and, and all of these things, all of these simultaneous conversations that are going on. My definition has had to shift. I think everyone's definition should have, has needed to shift about what defines a good person. And the excuses that we're willing to make for people about like, oh, they're a good person, dot, 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 right? Like, but, or they didn't mean it that way or like whatever. Um, I mean, like one of the things that stood out for me in that comment is that the definition of what makes a good person in 2008 or 2009 was someone who would just assume that they could say the man that you marry. Like, what if it wasn't a man? Like, you can, like, that's not something that we should be assuming. And the kind of people who would assume a heteronormative romantic relationship for another human being are maybe not good people. I'm not saying that they aren't. But like, if that is your, your starting place is heteronormativity, right? maybe you're not a good person. <laughs> or maybe you have some work to do, I should say. That's what I was going to say. This this journey towards being good that people have, like, first of all, they it's not that they consider it a journey. They consider it a label that they want to put on themselves. And I feel that if people could imagine that as a journey and like as the journey, then it would be less stressful <laughs> when someone points out that maybe you're not so good. Uh, we could all just accept that maybe we all aren't that great and that life is about getting better. And so when someone says that you've made a mistake or that you've said this thing that isn't good and you shouldn't ever say again because of the assumptions that, you know, are underlying, yeah. you could more easily accept that if you understand that good and bad aren't labels that you take on and off. They're just parts of, of the journey. And yeah, that, that was not a great person. <laughs> well, you and I were talking yesterday about like the, the existence of objective truth. And I think some version of that conversation is applicable here, which is to say, I, I probably spent a lot of time thinking about how, you know, like in my, when I was but a callow youth about what would make me or what if I was an objectively good person. And now like the more that I encounter the world and people different than me, I realize that there's probably, there may not be such thing as an objectively good person. But what I can say is that I wanna be an objectively better person from day to day and minute to minute. And that's something that I sort of hear in your response, which is like, I don't know that I'll ever be a good person. I can try. And what that really means is I just want to be a better version of myself, right? That the next time we are on a Zoom call together or the next time I see you in person, I want you to say like, oh, this is Eric 3.4 or this is Eric 4.7 and not like, oh, this looks a lot like Eric 1.0. You know what I mean? Like that, that, um, that if we were all just striving to do better than we have done, that like maybe I can't not be racist but i could be a little less racist you know like maybe there are certain aspects of my personality that will always be not maybe there are that will always be clouded and shaded by my specific experience of race in this country 
but that doesn't mean I can't do better, right? Like that doesn't mean I can't come to the defense of people who need it and I can't support the people who can benefit from my privilege. I feel like we have to end this conversation somewhere. So I'll just share like what's coming up for me in this (laughs) moment is just that like, you're incredibly smart. Um, Objectively so. (laughs) Objectively so. I mean. Because Harvard tells me so. (laughs) Yeah. Harvard tells you like if, if there were any objective measure of that, I feel like you've met it and gone above and beyond just that to actually demonstrate it um in the way that you live your life and i loved eric 1.0 uh you were like on the fence about 1.0 or maybe it was <laughs> eric 0.1 that you were on the fence <laughs> but 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 and this is this is what i say to to many people who are in that very beginning stage of knowing me is that one don't give it that much effort. <laughs> like, I'm really not worth it. Like, calm down. Or just like, see me in a year. <laughs> like, just just ease off and just like come back around to it in a year because that's when I'll start thinking seriously <laughs> about whether we're friends or not. But also that that is love. In that moment, like seeing immediately who you can be and who you are and and how that could be detrimental to you and not engaging with the parts that clearly hurt you that's love um you know holding people accountable for who they are who they can be that's a thing that i do from love and and people who don't rise to that don't get less love for me you just get less time and energy um so so yeah i did love eric 1.0 i just enjoy (laughs) eric 2.0 and 3.0 in conversation (laughs) i can tolerate (laughs) 3.0 right also like you made my cheeks hurt a lot from laughing (laughs) so that was difficult and, and, oh gosh, I don't want to keep talking, but now I'm also aware of, of my shit back then and how your sense of humor was an affront to the work that I had to do to be professional and to be seen as professional. Yeah. And so even though you were being funny and I thought you were funny and I wanted to laugh, there was only so much of that that I could engage in. I also can imagine that part of that is like this white man gets to come into this office and act like the court jester and still be taken seriously. Like his work product is still sufficient. Whereas like you don't even get to laugh at the same jokes as the people around you and you risk compromising your, um, the esteem in which people hold you and like the disparity there between our experiences just totally unrecognized in the within the institution so so yeah so i love you you're awesome i appreciate what you've shared on this call and in our friendship and for me it's 
I want to say exciting, but also therapeutic and, <laughs> and just huge for me to have someone in my life who's known me over time and made it through that initial awkward stage. <laughs> and our friendship is one of the things that is a constant reminder to me that I'm okay. Aw, you are okay. You're better than okay. Yeah. You're you're in the you're in the top five. Yeah. And oh, so that's the other thing I was gonna say is that just like <laughs> I am my I'm <sighs> taken aback by the quality of people I know in this moment. You mean because I am a sharp contrast to those people? You're like, wow, they could be this bad. <laughs> like, they could all be like him, but like, thank God they're not. Ah, uh, you are those people. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm so proud of, to the extent that any adult human, as you say, can be proud of another adult human. I am at least, at the very least, proud to be on this journey with you. And you... Um, constantly impress me and you make me want to be better which is like that's what I need in my friends is you don't need me to be good but you want me to be better 